Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now, this is the 65th sermon in our sermon series on Luke's Gospel. And this evening, we will study Luke chapter 14, verses 15 through 24. That's page 874 in your pew Bible, if you want to follow along with the text this evening. Now, when we were last together, we've seen in previous Sundays how as the cross has loomed larger and larger in our Savior's thoughts, he has paused to give a series of warnings that are grounded in the reason for the cross. In other words, that he will be the perfect offering for sin and for the rebellion of mankind that God's wrath will be consumed in his willing sacrifice. Only one thing is now left. We must accept the sacrifice he makes on our behalf because the final consummation is coming. God will put the world to rights. He will dwell with us. So if we say no to Jesus' work for us, then in God's recreation, we stand alone, alone to endure the fullness of God's wrath, his settled opposition to the sin that remains. So the cross becomes the great hinge point of all cosmic history. It's no wonder then it fills the thoughts and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. This bloody death of sacrifice that removes the chasm between God and mankind. The resurrection, the first fruit of a new, never-before-experienced life in God's presence forever. The last days are upon you. It is time to decide. Jesus teaches over and over again, will you accept God's provision, given in his mercy, of my substitution for you? Or will you reject me to stand alone before his terrifying wrath? This is not a matter to be shrugged off. And we've seen how the Lord Jesus each time becomes ever more assertive in this truth, despite every exception from those who found his ultimatum the hardest of teaching. Now, we saw last time how Luke now moves to examine the why. Why is it that in spite of all the testimony presented in his gospel, men and women still say no? There's a deeper examination of the inward heart in rejection. And this evening, we are still with Jesus 
after Sabbath worship in Luke chapter 14. He is at the home of a leader of the Pharisees for the main meal. We saw last time how he violated the man-made regulations that hedge the Sabbath day. He has shown, as he has done many times before, what sort of a world God's recreation will establish. He heals a man, brought low with dropsy, a terminal condition. The man is utterly healed. This is the sign of the kingdom that I will establish. This man is left with no signs or marks of his previous condition, a new creation. But we saw how Luke describes instead the heart attitude of the Pharisees and scribes at the table. They did not love this man. They did not love their neighbor. Instead, they used him as bait to somehow draw out the Lord Jesus and therefore accuse him. They were proud lovers of the self. They had a sense of entitlement that came with their position. And so the Lord Jesus tells them a parable of the man puffed up in importance, who takes the primary place at the table. This is a tragic group, far outside the kingdom of God. All of them would not escape the judgment to come unless there was a total change in their heart orientation. What is their problem? It is embedded in Jesus' teaching. The man's heart who sought the primary place at table, presumption, I am first. This is their heart exposed. Rather than an astonished gratitude for God's gracious gift and his promise to save, faithfully kept, we have here presumption. They believe they were to be served by God. They had decided that if I were creator of the universe, then they would be salvation by recognition, salvation by my effort, eternal life through my significance. But the Lord Jesus reminds his dinner host and the guests there, the Old Testament scriptures are clear. They are not the center of the universe. The Lord God is. He is the Almighty One. His is the glory. He shares it with no other creature. Rather, he humbles the proud and exalts the humble. This is his personal work. He will see to it. And in his teaching, he turns again, alludes once again in the way in which the Lord God time and time again humbled the proud, exalted the humble, how he overturned utterly the gods of Egypt, of Assyria, of Babylon, and dozens of lesser kingdoms all recorded in the Old Testament scriptures. He will overturn utterly the gods of our own making. Anything 
that claims our allegiance. God humbles the proud. All those assembled round that table knew precisely what the Lord Jesus was saying. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. Their own meals were in a way to be a recognition of the great messianic banquet to come. And Jesus himself has just invited every guest there to ponder their place in that glorious banquet of the age to come. It's in that moment, in the awkward silence that must have accompanied this teaching, that we hear one guest speak up in verse 15. He expresses hope in God's mercy. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But do you notice what Jesus does next? We've seen this before. When someone interrupts, your Savior lovingly turns it into what we might call today a teachable moment. He is so concerned, you see, with the souls of these men. He's so concerned with their ultimate destination before the throne of God in judgment. We can draw comfort from this. Because it means, my dear friends, the Lord Jesus Christ is so concerned for your soul as well. We see here a question embedded in the parable he now relates. What is the question? How will it be for you when the day of the kingdom feast actually comes? That is the question Jesus asks those guests. It is indeed the question that Luke is asking you and me. How will it be for you? So that we might answer this question honestly, Rightly, we must ask three questions of ourselves. We must remind ourselves, where is this celebration? Then who is invited? And third, what is the result? Let's turn now first to where is the celebration. In order to gain the most from our Lord Jesus' teaching, we should consider first where we are standing in relation to his description in verses 16 and 17. Let's see what it says. But Jesus said to him, the man who made this hope, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Let's consider this sentence. We have here a man of immense means who's extended an invitation to his friends to the invited to attend a great banquet. So let's ask first, what makes this meal, this banquet, great? Well, the greatness comes from two things. A large list of names and an extensive menu of food and drink to provide for them. This was a feast of an amazing gift that no one would want to miss. 
Where is the Lord Jesus taking these men? This indeed is the great banquet, pictured in the ultimate kingdom banquet, the supper of the Lamb. We know this for a fact because Luke has set the pattern already in the previous chapter, in chapter 13. This is a continuing pattern of our Savior's teaching here. Those who set their own terms of entry in their sense of entitlement and presumption through a grand doorway that he describes in his teaching there will miss the low, small door of humble access, of humility, of nothing in my hands I bring Naked, I come to thee for dress, as the old hymn tells us. But when the low, narrow door is shut with a terrible finality, all pleading is in vain. Instead, Jesus taught us, you will see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, all those gathered from east, west, north, and south at table in the kingdom of God. So at this point, we can also ask, why did the Old Testament use this symbol of a banquet, of a feast, for being in God's presence? Here's where it gets very, very fascinating. A great comfort to the believer in trial. It's meant to convey eternal satisfaction, eternal contentment and joy that comes with dwelling with God. There's an immense spiritual significance here because this image underlines the biblical principle of eternal satisfaction and security. How the created is brought in union with the Creator through Jesus Christ. One commentator said it like this, The metaphor of feasting assures us that no true appetite, desire, or longing given us by God will prove to have been a deception but all will be granted their richest and most sublime fulfillment. You see, my dear friends, the great banquet is a lavish, sumptuous image of the kingdom of heaven. And here's the astonishing thing. The reality will far surpass this metaphor drawn in human language, the reality of joyous satisfaction forever. Now we must ask the question, the ultimate question of the parable. Who is the host? Who is the master of the house? In verse 21, Revelation tells us who it is, doesn't it? 
Revelation 19 says this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The host, the master of the house, is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the very thing John the Baptist shouted out when he saw Jesus approaching. The convener, the host, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now that we know where we are, where are we in terms of Jesus' teaching of the great banquet? We need to ask the next question, who is invited? Now in the parable, he tells us a sobering truth. The guests who had accepted the first invitation all found something better to do. Now we must take care here and not be distracted by the diversity of their excuses. This is not Jesus' point. Rather, we remember now we're looking inwardly. We're looking deeper, aren't we? Jesus' point is in their similarity, in their unity. There is a sobering similarity in what lies behind these excuses. One had a field, another had some oxen, a third a new bride. But notice how the emphasis is on a similarity. It's in verse 18. But they all alike, you see that, began to make excuses. All alike, you see, placed the invitation lower down in their personal scale of values. So what is the biblical principle here? You might want to write this one down. To prefer anything, whatever, to God's invitation is to debar oneself from entry. To prefer anything whatever to God's invitation bars you from entry. All your preferences must go. Consider for a moment how ridiculous it would be if a guest arrived to a formal dinner dressed in their pajamas because they felt most comfortable in them, carrying a variety of utensils and several hampers of food, ignoring the table set, pushing it all out of the way so that they could encamp themselves as they saw fit. This is the stuff of comedy, isn't it? I can imagine Mo, Larry, and Curly turning up and doing something like this, or Stan and Ollie. But my dear friends, this is no comedy. The kingdom banquet has a sobering, a serious finality. Every, every man or woman who has approached the threshold of this banquet with their own religious ideas or safeguarding their own status and reputation or their own calculated advantage, their own scale of values and preferences had to put it down. They had to shed every one of those things. My dear friend, you must shed every single one of those things. 
if you are to take your seat at table. There is no room for anything else. Naked we come into the world. Naked we will go out of it. And in the same way, it is naked that we must pass from our unconverted life into the new creation in the kingdom of God. So who is invited? You are invited. Just you. You bring nothing and you place everything in his hands. It can't be put more starkly than that, can it? So we come to that final question our Savior asks. How will it be for you when the day of the kingdom feast actually comes? What is the result? Now, I think it's reasonable to assume that silence still prevailed at the dinner party at the end of the teaching that our Savior just made, as the truth really sank in. It's the last words that are the worst, aren't they? For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Just shift the emphasis slightly there, change the tone, and it will leave the guests with an astonishing truth. The Lord Jesus claims that he is the Son of God. They know what he's talking about, the great messianic banquet to come. Now let's say it again. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. He is the Christ. He is God. The Lord Jesus is the master of the house, the host. The the truth is singing in. The claim that he is making, it's a real personal confrontation, isn't it? These men knew the scriptures. They knew that because of God's covenant promise to Abraham, the nations of the world, we bless through Abraham's seed. And Jesus is saying, here I am. You were those invited. But none will be admitted. At that moment, every soul in the room except the Lord Jesus realized They were lost. Those who had had the most realized they were doomed. So we're left with the same question, aren't we? That's Luke's intention. How will you respond to the Lord Jesus? It comes down to that simple question. What will we do with Jesus? Now we can all get caught up in what our culture tells us. We're bombarded every day in what we see, in the conversations we have. People seem all right to us. Not bad. Good people. How can all this be so wrong? And so we give a conventional yes to Jesus, but it's never from the heart. We want what we want, When we want it. Thank you for the invitation. I'll just place it here somewhere in the in-tray. I'll get to it one day. 
We prefer our creation rather than the one Jesus brings. Now the gospel compels me as a preacher of that gospel to make this very clear. There are just two classes of humanity. The ones who accept the invitation with empty hands to enter God's rest and the ones who reject it to enter hell itself. For that is what the wrath of God is. Now we've heard the invitation from the mouth of Jesus himself. So what will we do with Jesus? In all the swirl of this world, all the voices that shout for our attention, it all comes down to this man who lived in the same history as you and I. This man who claimed to be God. Not just some wise teacher. He claimed to be God. My banquet. This man who died a horrible death, but taught that that death has cosmic significance for you and for me. The man who taught that he would be raised from the dead and was talking, eating, teaching with up to 500 people at one time. All of this substantiated again and again by evidence and proof. You want facts? You want proof? What will you do with Jesus Christ? It's there for you to study. Oh, my dear friend, do not reject it without ever having done the work. Because it's true. Whenever doubt comes, we are ultimately left with that simple question, what will I do with Jesus? The Apostle John said it like this. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. The true words of God. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.